um, of not being able to gather together um, in a corporate setting like today. Um, and so, though this feels odd and very spacious in many ways, um, I'm super thankful that we get to have mornings like to morning like this morning, where we get to gather um, and truly rejoice that our God is alive, and even in the midst of what's going on, he's still worthy of praising. Will you guys join me as I pray over our time this morning? Lord God, you are faithful, and we rejoice over your faithfulness. Lord God, we do rejoice that even in the midst of these last 16 weeks, You are alive and active. Lord, that you are working within our midst. You are working within our very souls, as well as you're working within our community, our congregation as a whole. God, I praise you for the countless stories I've got to hear from people of of the work you're doing in their life, Lord, as, as you're revealing sins within our lives and pointing us back to your son, pointing us back to the cross. Lord, we rejoice of the truth that you have made known to us, that you are the God that is in control, that you are the God that is sovereign, the God that is worthy of all praise and adoration. Lord God, we pray over our congregation. Lord, I pray for those that are not able to be with us this morning, or at least not in person, Lord. God, I pray that that this will be a rich season for them, even as they are apart from us in person, We are together in spirit, Lord, getting to rejoice in your goodness and your mercy. We're getting to rejoice in your word proclaimed. Lord God, we pray for our city. God, we pray for as things are starting to open up, we're seeing excitement in that and yet fears at the same time, Lord. And help us as followers of you to walk the line, to navigate through what it looks like to love our neighbors well, and at the same time not to succumb to the fears that are not of you. Lord God, may you direct us to to fear you above all else. For your scripture says that the beginning of knowledge is is to fear you, Lord. And so may we do that abundantly. Lord God, as we step into our text today, may we rejoice in your son, Jesus. May we rejoice that he is the risen Lord. He is the king that reigns on high and is worthy of praise. Lord, we give our time over to you. May you receive all glory, honor, and praise. Amen. Um, As most of you know, we we began a series last week, uh, Summer in the Psalms. And throughout this summer, as the title says, we're going to be walking through various psalms. I mean, one of the things I love actually about the, the branch in the summer is typically you get to hear from a variety of preachers. Uh, so though Doug and I will be preaching more, we're going to get to hear from, from elders and other members of our church getting to share with you of the psalms and the beauty of this psalm book, of the, what's worthy of praise. And today we're going to pick up with psalm number two. And as Doug shared last week, and this will be on a slide as well, the psalms as a whole is 150 psalms, but it's broken down by many scholars into five different books. And you'll see the five different books behind me on the screen. Yet what's important to note is is within those five, it's understood that the first and second psalm, psalms together, really are the entryway and the introduction into the book as a whole. So not only are they part of book one, but they actually serve a, a much larger purpose in giving us understanding of how do we actually walk into the book. 
It gives us a framework for the Psalter, the book of Psalms as a whole. And there's a man that came way before me named Charles Spurgeon, uh, who has these eloquent words to say on behalf of the first and second Psalm. And it'll be on the screen. He says, the first Psalm was a contrast between the righteous man and the sinner. And the second Psalm is a contrast between the tumultuous disobedience of the ungodly world and the sure exaltation of the righteous son of God. In the first Psalm, we saw the wicked driven away like chaff. And in the second Psalm, we see them broken in pieces like a potter's vessel. In the first Psalm, we beheld the righteous like a tree planted by the rivers of water. And here, we contemplate Christ, the covenant head of the king of all the islands. And all the heathens bow down before him and kiss the dust, while he himself gives a blessing to all those who put their trust in him. The two Psalms are worthy of the very deepest attention. They are, in fact, the preface of the entire book of the Psalms. You see, these Psalms play a pivotal role in helping us truly step into the literary sanctuary of the Psalms. And so prior to stepping into Psalm 2, it's, it's important for us to really gain some introductory insight into what's unique about Psalms, how does it actually speak into the framework of the book as a whole. And so it'll, it'll feel like a lengthier introduction in many ways, but I think it's, it's vital for us to understand this as we head into actually walking through the Psalm as a whole. And we're going to be looking at the Psalm type of Psalm 2, it's historical context, and then lastly, getting into, okay, what is the structure of the psalm? And so Psalm 2 is what scholars call a royal psalm, or others will call it a kingship psalm. And there's, there's 11 different psalms that fit this category that most scholars believe, and you'll see those on the screen as well. And what's important to note is that these psalms offer an insight into what is the ideology of kingship when it comes to Israel. You see, through these psalms, we get clarity of, of how the kings would have understood themselves, how they understood their authority, their role, and ultimately seeing what are their hopes and aspirations for the nation. See, royal psalms were actually commonly believed that they were part of the, the liturgy or the order of worship when it came to the kings engaging in temple worship. And, and though we're going to see that these psalms ultimately they differ in structure, they differ ultimately in the message, oftentimes we actually get to see the voice of the king in the psalm itself. And we'll see that today. Yet what's unique is within these 11 psalms that make up the royal psalms, there's four specific ones that really set a framework and structure for the psalm book as a whole. And that's the psalm we're going through today, Psalm 2. But then we also want to draw attention to Psalm 72, 89, which is actually what we read at the very beginning of our gathering uh, when we began our call to worship, and then Psalm 44. And what we notice about each of these psalms is they play a specific role because Psalm 2 is what actually starts the book. And then as we noted, there's five different books within the psalms. And each of these, Psalm 72, Psalm 89, and Psalm 144, actually become kind of the bookends of three of the five books. And as you probably know, you're probably like, well, Davey, there's 150 Psalms. Why do we stop at 144? Uh, many scholars believe that the last six Psalms, 155, 
through 150, I mean 145 through 150, is really this like long doxology, proclamation of praise to God. And so yes, it's part of the last book, but like the content section, you could argue, ends in 144. And so how does all this information help us understand the Psalms, help us understand Psalm 2? We'll see that Psalm 2 ultimately sets the stage. It introduces us to the king. It introduces us to his authority and rule over the nations. And then as Psalm, or as book two of the Psalms closes, in Psalm 72, we're still seeing this praise. It's a psalm of praise as we look to the kings and he reflects on the blessing and responsibility that he has as a king and as he passes that down from king to king. And what's interesting to note is at the end of Psalm 72, it says, thus concludes the Psalms of David. And many scholars believe that at one point, Psalm 1 through 72 were actually coupled and read as one unit, though it's two books. Yet by the time we arrive to the end of book 3, or Psalm 89, it carries a different tone. This royal psalm actually bitterly agonizes over God's apparent rejection of the Davidic covenant, of, of the destruction of Israel. And so it's with anticipation that we get to the end of book five. The end of the Psalms as a whole, and Psalm 144 is really a, a backwards reflection. And it's looking back at what God has done through his kingdom, through Israel's monarchy, and the reality is we see that the reflection's not the most positive thing. Rather, the author acknowledges the ultimate failure of the kingship. But the beauty of that psalm is it doesn't end with failure, but it actually points to a hope of restoration, of a purified kingship that's long expected in the Messiah. You see, the, these psalms play a structural role in helping us walk through the meta narrative of the book of Psalms. It helps us with a framework to be reading these psalms in anticipation of Christ, in anticipation of the one to come. And not only is the psalm type helpful, but also getting a grip and glimpse of the historical context is vital. You see, it's understood, though we don't have a subscription at the beginning of this, we don't have a psalm of at the beginning of the psalm, it's understood that David wrote this psalm. Even as Jamie read from Acts 4, it says a psalm of David in that passage. And so the reality is, is that, that David, as the author, realistically wrote this in light of the inauguration ceremonies of the Davidic rulers, of the kings. And so from king to king and generation to generation, this psalm would have been read. And yet, if, if you know much of the history of Israel, this psalm that speaks of the authority and sovereignty of the kings of Israel you would begin to notice that that reality seems absent from many of the kings that ruled in Israel. Rather, many of David's heirs actually seemed to rule in such a way that did not honor God, that did not reflect the role that God had given them. You see, in the Old Testament, we have First and Second Kings that gives an account of the kings of Israel. And this is the overwhelming reprise or summary statement for the majority of the kings. 
Over and over in the book, it says, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in his sins, which he made Israel to sin. We actually see that out of the 40 rulers that ruled Israel or Judea during the, or Judah during this kind of divided kingdom era. There's only eight good kings. And 32, this statement is made about. And so a lot of Israelite history actually transpires throughout the Psalms. This isn't like one of the letters written in the New Testament where you can pinpoint an exact time it was written. Rather, these Psalms, these 150, make up a large span of time. And so much of Israel's history was progressing throughout this, and that's evident through the various Psalms we'll read throughout this summer. So it's important to note that by the time the book of Psalms is actually compiled, all 50 are brought together. It's in this post-exile period. And what does the post-exile period represent? It really represents no monarchy. You see, Babylon's, the Babylons came in in 586 and they destroyed the temple. They destroyed Jerusalem and completely wiped away King Zedekiah, who was the monarch at that time. And yet a couple hundred years has transpired from that event to when the book of the Psalms is completely concluded. And so as Israel reads Psalm 2, in the midst of no king, the faithful believe that there's deeper meaning to the psalm. You see, if God stays true to his word, and he does, then the promises of the Davidic covenant still need to stand. Therefore, one begins to see Psalm 2 not as much looking back, but actually looking forward to the expected Messiah. And so it's ultimately through this lengthy introduction that might feel lecturesque in format that we arrive at, at Psalm 2. And the reality is that Psalm 2 is laid out structurally pretty clearly. You have four different stanzas and then three verses within each of them. And you'll see kind of where we're headed on the screen in these four different categories. Verses one through three focuses on the nation's resistance. Four through six, the Lord's reaction. Seven through nine, the anointed's response. And then lastly, 10 through 12, the king's reprimanded. And throughout this, we'll see that the Lord's anointed reigns. Therefore, repent and submit to his son. Let's begin in verses one through three, the nation's resistance. And these verses say, why do the nations rage? And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst apart their bonds and cast away their cords from us. See, the psalmist, he actually parallels these lines. And so each of these lines, each of these verses, he's really saying the same thing, just rephrasing it. And the main emphasis is that the nations, led by the kings, are conspiring against the Lord and his anointed. So that leads to the question, well, what are they conspiring against? They ultimately conspire against God because they don't recognize his authority. They don't recognize him as their true king, their true Lord. They have no allegiance to God. 
And the reality is if God truly does reign over them, then that diminishes their rulership. That diminishes their authority because they have one that is higher than them. And obviously that doesn't bode well for the kings. That doesn't bode well for the nations in which the kings represent. And so they desire to rebel. They desire to fight back against God. And what's even more interesting is you see for, for these kings, for these nations, they see God's control not as liberating, but rather as suffocating and binding. They use that language of bonds and, and courts where they're being tied and they're just like, we just want to break free of God's control, of God's reign. They want to be absent of God's authority. And yet we notice that in the midst of this, in the midst of their rage and their plotting and their devising. As the psalmist says, this idea, this desire to break away is ultimately futile. I mean, he says in verse one, the people's plot in vain. They think they serve as the sovereign ones and yet there can only be truly one sovereign one. They plot in vain because who can conspire against the sovereign Lord and actually be victorious? You see, scripture actually reveals that in their attempts to plot against God, their plots actually fit within God's righteous and redemptive plan. The nations raging don't fulfill their purpose, rather they fulfill God's. And we see this truth of God's sovereignty magnified through the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, as Jamie read, we see that the early church actually prays in light of Psalm 2 and Acts 4. And to read a little bit of that, they said, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. I mean, we see the first century looking back on the psalm, but then looking to Christ, saying, look, they plotted against God's only son. And those that led Jesus to the cross on their own volition were still working within God's predestined plan for his son and for the nations. So who can control the God of the universe? Who can move beyond his dominion? Who can hijack his plan and break free from these bonds? The Lord's reaction in verses four and six reveal the answer. No one can. Verse four through six says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision when he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So David the psalmist, he actually shifts our view from earth now to heaven. And, and we open with the Lord seated arguably on his throne in the highest of highs in heaven. And these contrasting images actually magnify the otherness of God. You see, God is in a completely different league. 
It'd be like our branch softball team trying to make it into the MLB. It just doesn't work, folks. I've seen our team play. We're destined for failure. You see, these contrasting images make us or lead us to wondering why these small, puny, earthly kings would be trying to go against the ruler of the world, the authoritative creator, God. And David actually personifies God using this imagery of God laughing, which I think for many of us is an odd, an odd visual image of, of our God. And though for many of us, this laughing or this scoffing might not necessarily feel appealing, his intended message of, of why he uses that language is clear. Ultimately, he's saying God's power and position is so secure that any threat received from human powers does not need to be taken seriously. I mean, imagine if I went up to LeBron James and I was like, hey, LeBron, I just want you to know, like, I'm coming for your spot and I'm going to take your spot and start the Lakers next year. Like, realistically, he would laugh in my face. Because it's just, it's, it's a completely absurd idea in the grand scheme of things. And that's just a microcosm of God and his interactions and authority with the nations. You see, God's laughter actually turns from derision, or turns to derision or disdain. Disdain is another word for derision. And ultimately, this disdain actually leads to this rebuke that he gives the nations. You know, what's interesting is we look at his rebuke in the end, in verse 6, and his rebuke is ultimately the installation of his anointed one. His rebuke is the establishment of the king on Zion. You see, Zion has both historical and metaphorical significance for historically, location-wise, it's a physical hill within Jerusalem where the Israelite kings would reign. Yet again, it carries much more weight than just an earthly location. For Zion actually carries the metaphorical language of this heavenly Jerusalem. God's holy and eternal city where he will forever reign. And so this installation, this coming of this king is really twofold in meaning. It speaks of the kings in the line of David who will reign, the physical location, yet it also speaks of a greater king, the one eternal king who will forever reign, King Jesus. And he says, those who oppose God will ultimately be terrified. Why will they be terrified? Because God is reasserting order to the nations. He has placed his chosen one to rule, and you don't want to stand in opposition to the Lord's anointed. What's also important to note is, is the language used in the first three verses, verses four through six. You see, the language in the first stanza actually represents a present tense. The nations rage, the people's plot, the kings set themselves, the rulers take counsel. It's all present, active. And yet in verse six, we see the Lord speak in the past tense. I have set my king. The Lord's already done it. Even as the nations plot and rage against God, because like it's already been done. It's already been decided. My king has been established. 
and God's anointed is appointed, and he will not be disappointed. You see, the Lord's anointed's reign has been established. He resides in Zion. And now the psalmist moves in verses four, seven through nine to where we actually get to hear the anointed one's response. We get to hear the king himself speak. And he says in verse seven, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break free from them a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So once again, David shifts and we have the king before us proclaiming the Lord's decree. The Lord's anointed declares his rights of sovereignty and ultimately warns those that stand in opposition that judgment is coming. And the language used here should point us back to the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, where the language used in Samuel speaks of this everlasting kingdom that is focused on David's offspring, that the line of David will reign in succession and God will make his kingdom forever. Yet within that that, that section, he also speaks of, of the unique relationship that David has with God. It's a relationship of father and son. And so Israel and its, te- and its kings would take comfort in this decree. And yet, as, as we noted already, as time goes on, king after king and generation after generation, they couldn't help but begin to question the words of God, question this decree that has been made. Because over time, we see that the kingdoms end up crumbling. They've been taken into exile, removed from their home. The temple of God, the very place where they said God resided, was destroyed. So they can't help but ask, well, where is your son? Will the nations actually be his heritage? The earth, his possession, will he rightly judge the earth? And then as the Old Testament scriptures conclude, we enter into 400 years of silence. Just waiting. God, where is your king? Where are you? And then Matthew begins with the words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The lineage of David lives on. And as we progress farther, we see that when Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River, the heavens open up and God proclaims, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then we progress even further. And as as he actually begins his ministry, in the gospel of Mark, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. And, and we see the kingdom unfolding throughout the Gospels. 
And then after Jesus' death and resurrection, the great commission that he gives to his disciples and he gives to you and I is all authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See the beautiful picture that carries us through, that all authority is Jesus's. He resides over the earth. He resides over the cosmos. He is the one that is in control. And his authority will ultimately lead to the nations bowing down. I mean, Paul proclaims just that in Philippians when he said, God has highly exalted him, that is Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The nations are his inheritance. This is the authoritative Messiah, the Son of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he rightly and perfectly will judge all people. 2 Corinthians states, for, he must, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. See, all that Psalm 2 says will come to pass. And so for the believer, for those of us that, that have a relationship with Christ, you have no need to fear this judgment. For you have been justified by the blood of Christ. His blood spilled has made you pure. You have been saved from the wrath of God for because Christ took the cup of God's wrath. You have been reconciled to God and so rejoice in those truths. Yet for the unbeliever, this psalm and these words should be a sobering reality because no one can outrun the judgment seat of God. Everyone will one day stand before God and have to give an account. And the question is, where do you place your hope? Do you place your hope in just your good works? That if I put enough stuff on that scale, it's going to tip in my favor. Or hoping that in the statistics of the world, you're above the median when it comes to good works. As long as I'm 51%, we're good to go. See, if, if, we, if we view it that way, the reality is we're all doomed because the scales will never tip in your favor. See, Scripture says that the wages of sin is death. And the reality is you're working overtime. So I urge you to turn to Christ for he alone can be the one to save you. You see, man-made systems of righteousness will always fail time and time again. The only way to be made righteous, the only way to accept the rod, escape the rod of iron, this dashing that he speaks of, is to place your faith in the only righteous, perfect one, in Jesus Christ. For scripture proclaims that Christ was made to be sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. It's ultimately a call to repent and turn to Christ. See, we have been united 
with Christ as followers. And his righteousness is actually imputed. It's put into us. So though we still face the judgment seat of God, we actually can stand before God. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. See, this call to turn to God is is ultimately what the last stanza proclaims as we see that the kings are reprimanded in verses 10 through 12, which is now, therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. We're given a pretty stern warning for the rebellious kings. Ultimately, he's telling them, you need to wise up and recognize the authority, the control, the sovereignty of God because resistance is futile. Not only is this a losing battle, but the war has already been won. And you, my friend, are on the losing side. So therefore, accept the sovereignty of God and and therefore submit to the king that God has rightly appointed. See, this God that they're trying to go to war against, it's not just some puny local deity. He doesn't just fit within the confines of Israel, but no, this is the God of the world, the God of the universe. And you cannot stand in his way. So David calls them to serve the Lord and to approach him with fear. Again, Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Or as one psalmist scholar says in this regard to this verse, he says, fear implies that God is the center of all existence and power and that human beings, even kings who are powerful on a human level, are not. Rather, they are dependent on God for everything. There's, there's this warning. Fear the Lord, but it's, it's, a, it's a righteous, actually joyous fear. He calls this a rejoice with trembling. And he calls him to kiss the sun, which my mind automatically goes to the medieval era where you have the king step out and the subjects come and, and kiss the hands or kiss the jewels of the king. You see, it's this, this sign of deference, the sign of homage and respect it's ultimately a submission to the Lord's authority. Again, we recognize in at least the ESV and in other translations that there's a capital S for son in this verse and in verse 7. It's emphasizing and pointing to the messianic understanding of this psalm. And David concludes his psalm with the words, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So when we look at this concluding stanza in in the midst of the psalm as a whole, we ultimately see these contrasting pictures between those who oppose God and those who fear and submit to God. Those who fear and submit to God, those who repent of opposing God and turn to God, those who take refuge in him, they'll be blessed. While those who oppose God, those that rage and plot against him, The words are not comforting. They experience wrath, fury, being broken by the rod, being dashed into pieces. They experience judgment. 
Blessing and judgment are contrasted. Abiding in the king brings blessing. Opposing the king brings judgment. And so the psalm ends with, with a call to repent. A call for the kings and the nations to turn from serving themselves to actually serving the Lord. And this is a beautiful thing, for he is calling us to turn from something that ultimately leads to judgment, ultimately leads to death, and calling us to turn into something that brings blessing and life. It's a call for us to return to God, to repent and take refuge in his son. Because the Lord's anointed is the one that reigns. And as, as I stated in, in the introduction, the psalm, this psalm serves as an entryway into the psalm book as a whole. For we're introduced to the king. And through it, this psalmist is ultimately calling us to recognize who the king is and to submit to Christ as king. The psalmist begins with the question of why. He says, why do the nations rage? And, and, and he, David's ultimately amazed and shocked that the nations lack the ability and understanding to actually recognize that, that God is the true king and his king rules indefinitely. But not only that, he's shocked they don't recognize that, that God's rulership is good and benevolent. But I think that question or that question of why leads us to even ask within ourselves, like, do we view God, do we view Christ with, with a fear and a reverence, or do we ultimately view God like the nations do? You see, we live in an age that glorifies independence and freedom of will. I mean, recall our own nation's history with the famous words of our founding father, Patrick Henry, who says, give me liberty or give me death. Or one of maybe the most epic and monumental moments in movie history, when in Braveheart, William Wallace, played by Mel Gibson, is literally having his body mutilated and torn apart, and with his dying breath yells, freedom. Please hear me. I wholeheartedly believe there is a time to fight for freedom from oppression and freedom from repression. It's even worth dying for. And we see Christ himself reveal much of those truths. And yet so often, I think we take historical figures that fight for an entire nation's freedom and we say, hey, I'm I'm gonna do that, but for my own life. I'm my own nation. I need my own freedom. It's ultimately our personal anthem of personal freedom from all restraint whatsoever. We proclaim the mantra, no one's going to tell me what to do. Or in our generation that, hey, you do you and I'll do me, which really means just shut up and don't tell me what to do. And even if you agree with what they're saying, you're often like, I'm not going to give you the satisfaction that I actually agree with you. So I'm going to play devil's advocate just because I want to fight against, keep my freedom. Jesus, society has, has fed us the lie that happiness comes through personal freedom, sexual promiscuity, the accumulation of material wealth, and the do whatever it takes to achieve personal satisfaction. I mean, we have books like Honoring the Self, where this is quoted. To honor the self is to be in love with your own life 
in love with our possibilities for growth and for the experiencing of joy, in love with the process of discovering and exploring our distinctly human potentialities. Thus, we can begin to see that to honor the self is to practice selfishness in the highest, noblest, and least understood sense of the word. And this, I argue, requires enormous independence, courage, and integrity. I mean, we're being told that to honor oneself is to actually just be as selfish as, and, as possible. I mean, in a, in a noble and dignifying way, yet at the same time, my desires, my needs, my wants trump all for the sake of my worth. And, and we see that the, the nations in this passage are really echoing that same beat to the drum. They want to throw off the chains of God, thinking that these things are heavy shackles that weigh them down, that prevent them from becoming who they truly are, who they're truly meant to be. And yet the reality is the weights of the nation are what drag people to hell, where the nations take, the Lord gives. I mean, remember the words of Jesus. He says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Like, do we actually believe that to be true? Do we recognize Christ for who he says he is? Or have we become so enamored with the world that we just join in opposition and plotting? Do we see these cords as restrictive or freeing? See, those who submit to Christ actually discover that these bonds aren't restrictive bonds, but they're the bonds of relationship. They're family ties that bind us together in unity, in one accord. I mean, think about just the contrast of these images within a marriage relationship. One may define the bonds of this commitment as the old ball and chain, and yet others see it as truly a beautiful freedom of covenantal intimacy and relationship. Do you see Christ's love as bondage or freedom? We have to recognize that in reality, this image of bondage, we're all bonded to something. We're all slaves to something, and it might carry different forms. It might morph over time. It might mature as we grow. But ultimately, we're all enslaved. So are you enslaved to just the notoriety or influence that you desire? Will you do whatever it takes to be influential? Does your mood depend on how many likes you get on one of your pictures, on one of the things that you say on Facebook? Or rather, do you actually not say something that you truly believe because you think if you say it, you'll lose influence, you'll lose worth and notoriety? Or for others, are you enslaved to just the monetary worth that you have or maybe don't have? Does your paycheck define you? Do you live your life in such a way where you flaunt your wealth so that all can see, but you kind of act like it's a humble brag? Does the salary of your current career or future career aspirations drive the way in which you do life? Or are you enslaved to pleasure? You see, the Bible speaks specifically about these types 
slavery, these types of sins. See, Paul actually simplifies ultimately these two categories into sin or righteousness. You're enslaved to one of those two camps. We can see the sin takes on many different forms. And yet sin or righteousness. And Paul alludes to this in much detail in Romans 6. And it's, it's a larger section, but I think it's so worthy of reading uh, that I'm going to put it on the slide above. Romans 6, 6 through 23 says, Do you not know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, that you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. And I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We see that offering ourselves to God is ultimately a good thing. It's actually the most noble and righteous act we can do as humans. It's what we are called to do. Slavery to sin is death. Yet slavery to righteousness gives us life and life to the fullest. For it is a life that includes Christ, the very life giver. Slavery to righteousness is actually a glorious reality. It's what it looks like to submit to Christ. Submission means we submit to our own worldly desires and embrace the desires and agenda of our king. We no longer submit to our own authority. We submit to the authority of God. And this is an agenda that is ultimately for our good and for his glory. Submission means we submit to his word. And we have been blessed with the very word of God himself. To submit to his word means we ought to know his word. We ought to know what he has said and what he has called us to do. So embrace the word, sit in the word, be saturated by it. And submission means we are to proclaim his word. We are to proclaim the message of God. As Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. As those that have repented and believed, we now march to that drum of proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. We proclaim the gospel and we do this individually as well as we do this corporately. We are part of the family of God and so we link arms in these endeavors. May we pray for boldness to preach the gospel 
that his name, the name of Jesus, may be proclaimed among our neighbors, among our nation, and ultimately among our world. See, this ultimately comes down to the question of who is the king of your life? If our answer is anything other than Christ, we need to reevaluate. There's only room for one king to rule. And the decision was made a long time ago. That king went to a cross for all of his subjects. Christ is the anointed one, the Messiah who reigns on high. So may we recognize him as Lord and Savior. Turn to him. Submit to him. May we take comfort that blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Lord God, we do praise you for your psalm book. Lord, 150 beautiful songs that we get to be saturated in. That proclaim of your goodness, of your mercy, that express our emotions from joy and praise to even lament. And God, we praise you for the second psalm. That that points to your son, Jesus. That points to your son as the king of kings and lord of lords. God, may we recognize your son as king of our life. May we live in such a way where we repent of the ways in which we walk away from him and then submit to him as our authority, as our ruler, for we know his authority and his rulership is good and benevolent. Lord God, you are worthy of praise, and it's to you we pray. Amen.